G'day everyone. Well, thanks for joining us here again on MTBA's podcast, Life Off-Road. I'm Joe Mackey. Look, imagine spending 20 days and nights in remote areas of Alaska during their winter, battling below 40 degree temperatures, extraordinary wildlife for a 1600 kilometre journey. Now, it's not an accident that you get there. It's the world's toughest endurance race, the Iditarod Invitational. And since 2002, only 56 people have completed this journey on the bike. And one of them is Australian Troy Schakowsky, and he joins me here in Daisy Hill. Troy, thanks so much for catching up with MTVA. Um, what could possibly want to be one of the furthest destinations from Alaska, Daisy Hill, your home. How does a bloke from Daisy Hill end up in Alaska racing this amazing race? Well, one of the things I always joke with my mates is that it's a great way to escape an Australian summer. Uh, but the reality of it is, for me, it was the it was the ultimate challenge that encompassed so many different things that, that I enjoy. Uh, a mental and physical challenge. Uh, combining it with um, with bikes, of course, uh, a very unique bike, uh, fat bike uh, that's very tailored and refined to suit the race and the conditions, but also um, adding a little bit of camping in an extreme environment as well. It has its its own challenges. So all of those combined, that's the big draw card for me. Uh, and Take us back to the start. Um, you're a Daisy Hill boy. You've been riding the trails here in, since the 80s. How did this love of mountain biking begin? Uh, well, for me, it was the, the very early days of mountain biking in California. Uh, I saw an article in a BMX mag um, when I was a youngster uh, that advertised uh, this new thing called uh, AT, ATBs, all-terrain bikes as we knew them back then, uh, in Topanga Canyon in California. Uh, and from there it progressed, we started to see mountain bikes uh, come through into Australia. And um, that was another facet of cycling for me. Um, I don't consider myself a, a roadie or, or a mountain biker or a trackie or anything like that. I'm just a, a bike rider. And for me, every aspect of, of cycling is interesting. So getting a mountain bike in the early days was a, you know, a really cool thing. It, it opened up new areas to ride, enabled you to, uh, to, to get out and ride and, and get, your, uh, you know, get your fix of, of whatever, whatever bike riding you were into. It enabled you to get your fix. We'll get to the endurance stuff. So how did you get to, to get to the endurance, uh, the, the 1,600 kilometres, those really long distances? As a youngster, I always enjoyed solo riding, uh, getting out and riding all day um, from early age right through from like 11. I'd disappear all day on, on, my, on my bike um, out of the country roads where we lived at the time. And, uh, yeah, I'd, I'd spend all day just, just riding around. And to me, that was uh, – it was a sense of freedom. Uh, it was exploration. Uh, you felt free. Uh, and that just grew from there into um, starting to do Audax rides where, uh, you know, distances 200, 300, 600 k's um, in, in, a, in a day slash on a weekend um, where you break it up over two days. That started to, uh, to interest me more and more. And uh, as that progressed, it was like, wow, these uh, fat bikes were just starting to come out. Uh, I'd read about the Iditarod in a, uh, an in-flight magazine uh, back in 2009. And I thought, wow, now that's a really, really cool thing to do. And uh, it took me a few years to piece it all together. There's, um, you know, with gear and um, finances, etc. So uh, 2013 was the first uh, first year I went over to Alaska uh, to do the survival camp that the race directors run uh, to see what you're made of. Uh, it's part pre-qualification, but it's also there to uh, to teach you some of the, the nuances of, of uh, extreme winter travel. 
in Alaska on the Iditarod. All right, well, how do you get there? How, what, what is involved in, in training for something like this? Run, run us through, say, uh, in the lead-up to, to one of these races. What do you do? Uh, at the moment, I'm, uh, the last few years have been working on an intense program with, uh, with my coach, uh, Mark Watts. Uh, we put together a program that is very tailored to suit uh, the rigours of uh, ultra-endurance racing on the snow. So it's not, it's not a high-energy output, as you'd imagine, but the, the loading is fairly high. You've got a fairly high resistance on, on the snow. So it's, it's like riding... It's similar to riding on sand. Um, the resistance is there. So you've got to train your mind and your body to adapt to that when uh, you're... You're happy if, on some days if you can ride at, at seven kilometres an hour. You're cheering. You think it's a great day because you've probably been pushing your bike for the last two days in, in rubbish conditions. I, uh, one of my colleagues told me that you sometimes ride the BRV2, the Brisbane Valley Rail Trail. Um, you do a bit of a few overnights, Sarah. Is that how you sort of do the, the long distances? Yeah, the, yeah, the BBRT is a fantastic portal for that because you can set yourself up. You've got 160 k's in one direction. And you don't have to, um, I mean, you can bivy anywhere you like, you can, you can sleep um, beside the trail, which is fantastic. You don't need a great, uh, no great setup for that. Um, and it's, it's very close in, uh, in how it replicates the, the kind of stages you do, you, you know, you might do each day, where you just get on the bike and you pedal, you manage your body, you manage your, your food and hydration uh, throughout the day. But the, the essence is to just keep moving forward. That, that is a tough one. Um, what is involved in, in food? I read that, that, you know, you send food ahead sometimes so you can, you know, you've, you've got your stash. How, how do you operate it? Are you, how meticulous do you have to be with something like this? It, the, the, in some ways you can overthink it, but you shouldn't also underthink it. Uh, you, there are different sections on the trail that, that may require a different approach with food. Uh, when we go through the interior, uh, you, you'll probably be carrying about five to six days worth of food at any one time. Um, because of the remote location, uh, you are totally on your own. But when we send food drops ahead, we'll be sending them to small villages that have a post office. Now, to, to take away the romance of what a village life sounds like, a post office is probably just a window in the side of somebody's small house. And some of these villages may only have ten people in them. But they'll receive a mail drop every every week or so, um, and a person will operate the post office out of their home. So you'll you'll mail your uh, your drops ahead on the U.S. Postal Service, um, and yeah, hopefully they're there when you arrive in town. What if they're not? If they're not, you've got to uh, scrounge up what you can. Uh, it happened to me in 2017, uh, 2016. No, 17. Uh, I got to the town called Ruby, uh, which is the first village on the Yukon. I've just come through the, uh, the interior. I had uh, five days through the interior. I was running low on food, and I sent my food drop to, uh, to the village. One of the uh, school staff there said that they would pick them up from the, uh, from the post office, which they did. They took them home. But when I arrived, he uh, decided to go on a snow machine trip with a mate, uh, up the trail for a few days, uh, up to the hot springs. So his, my food was locked away inside, uh, inside his house. So I was like, okay, what do I do? Um, you scrounge up food. You find ways. There are villages. Uh, the, the village has a, um, uh, usually a small store that you, can, that you can grab some snacks. Yeah, it's nothing solid. What, what, is it, what are those nights like? 
Um, you know, there's the, the wind chill factor you spoke of, but as I mentioned, there's some extraordinary wildlife that probably you also have to, to take care of or be aware of. Moose are the, the, biggest, the biggest threat that you'll actually face uh, from a physical side of it. Moose are browsers, so they browse on the willow shoots that are beside the trail. And because the trail is a little bit more compacted than the, than the, the surrounding snow under the trees, so they tend to use the trail as well as um, just to get around on. When you come across a moose, they're, they're, they're very big, they're very, very dumb and sometimes quite docile. Mm. But they will, uh, you sometimes have a standoff on the trail with them where you have to wait for them to move off the trail and that could, that could last an hour. Is, is that like a Paul Hogan moment in Crocodile Dundee, the lowering oh, of the... Oh, you, you, like, you like to think that, yeah, that that could <laughs> yeah. happen. Uh, people have been charged. The, the worst case scenario is where they'll charge and, and, and stomp on you um, until the threat is, you know, in their mind is, is gone. So you've had a few altercations with, with moose? Or no, no, I've, I've been pretty right? lucky, yeah. Yeah, um, I have heard stories though. Uh, other other animals to um, to be concerned about are wolves. Um, they don't really pose so much of a threat to humans. They're, they're generally a lot more curious. But some people have woken up in the morning and they've had wolf track around their around their bivy site. One story from uh, one of the runners, uh, Tim Hewitt. He had uh, he woke up one night in his in his sleeping bag. Uh, with wolves sort of just just picking through his food and just surrounding him, and um, but his his zipper on his sleeping bag was frozen. He said he just felt like a big human burrito, uh, waiting <laughs> waiting to be attacked. But uh, everything came good for him that night. What do you do during the night times? What what is what's racing through your head after a hard day slogging it out on the bike? Uh, often uh, night time is a really good time to travel on the trail. Oh, okay. So it suits someone from this hemisphere because it's it's daylight hours um, in your in your circadian rhythm. So the uh, travelling at night is really good. The temperature is a lot uh, a lot cooler, so you have a much firmer trail. Uh, during the day in the afternoon, that's when sometimes the snow can be a little bit softer on the surface. Uh, the trail might not be as rideable, so you end up with a little bit softer conditions from lunchtime through to about two or three o'clock. Um, but but during the night time, it's a fantastic time to travel. Uh, Body management uh, goes up considerably because you've got the huge temperature differences and humidity changes as well uh, as the night progresses. So you've really got to manage your, your layers in your clothing to make sure that you're not building up too much sweat. Uh, the moment you stop, you've got to layer up to trap that body heat, but you don't want to be overlayered where you're uh, sweating out your, your layers. You um, seem to have been the uh, first Australian really to, to, to go into this event from, from what I can see on the records. Is, is that right? Is, is that a, an asset for you, travelling at night? Are you the only one that sort of does it or do the, do oh, the other competitors sort of no, realise right, that? No, yeah. strategically, yeah, it depends on what section uh, they're in, I guess, with their, their recovery or um, how they want to travel. Um, Russ Worthington was the first Australian uh, to, to attempt the race. Uh, he was a pioneer of it. Um, he raced in 2012, which was a bit of a landmark year because um, they had extremely heavy snow right from the start of the race. So he was, um, along with a lot of other races too, they were heavily sidelined by the, uh, by the conditions. Um, and uh, I think two days in, they had something like 70% of the field scratch uh, after two days of the race. Um, so not many people finished that year. Nobody, as far as I recall, went to Nome that year on the 1,000 mile. 
tell us about some of the most beautiful experiences perhaps that you've encountered in this 1600 kilometer journey the sunrises and sunsets are just phenomenal the color temperature of the um of the sky uh, it just takes your breath away uh, the aurora borealis as well when you have clear nights it's there every night and it changes colors uh, as the night progresses so it'll start off a very rich green uh, and by the time it's uh, the early hours of the morning, it's dropped down to a, like a purpley, purpley red. And it changes patterns too. Um, you've got s swirls um, to um, like vapour, smoke uh, kind of effects. It's, um, that's, that's probably the most surreal experience that you can have on the trail. Does that take away sometimes the pain and agony of <laughs> what you're doing? Uh, it, it's funny because you do, I would say you grow numb to it after a while, but you have so many things going through your mind. And when, when it's the 15th, 16th, 17th night on the trail uh, and your mind is really elsewhere, you still look up and you go, oh yeah, well, the lights are out. Big deal. <laughs> because everything is really just on top of you. you you're trying to battle so many different things and and you do, you do appreciate it. It's, you go through a lot of what we call type two fun. So it's not so much fun while you're doing it, but when you uh, look back and reflect on it, that's when you, you go, wow, that was just insane. That was just so awesome. Now with beautiful moments, there's always tough moments. Are there some that you'd care to share? Oh yeah, there are times when you're on the side of the trail, just bawling your eyes out. Never at a point where you want to scratch, but it's just it just becomes so many things become overwhelming, um, and even just the simplest things uh, can can sort of you know pop you over the edge. Um, is it a test? It's a test of yourself, I guess, isn't it? It really is. Really find out who you are. Exactly. Yeah, and how you react to things as well, uh, like mechanical issues or uh, or physical issues, uh, temperature as well. If you get caught out in a storm, uh, it's how you react to those kind of things. Um, there was a, a ground blizzard that was in 2018 as I was coming over the last mountain range before the coast. Um, it's a, a, an area they call the blowholes. Uh, and it's like being, the, the wind strength is like being at the back of a jet engine. It, it has that much power. Jeez. You don't know how long you'll be in one of these um, weather events. So you've got to make sure that all of your food and, and hydration are all you know ready to go and same with your layers. And that's when it starts switching on things in your mind it's it's how you react to those things it's you know are you are you are you on top of things or are you a bit of a passenger in all of this and then when it all goes pear-shaped you, you scratch your head going well how did this happen um, i've always been on top of those kind of things and i think when the weather starts to hit that's when it really i start to get really excited with it um, it's a very strange thing and i think it's that that battle with mother nature that you want to it's it's a real challenge it's not it's not an attack from another racer where you where you need to respond from a, a physical side of things when mother nature it's something very intrinsic when those weather challenges come about it's kind of well this is this is challenging me to my core as opposed to just something that's uh, bought by a third party You've, you've done it four times, haven't you, you've finished, but, but you've never won. Some people do a triathlon or an event and do it once they train all for that, so that's their goal, they've done that. Why do you keep going back? I think it's the, the knowledge that I can do better each time. There's something that I can refine each and every time. Uh, it's the only race that I do 
uh, throughout the year, and I, I spend those 12 months revolving around those particular that particular time of the year. Uh, with my recovery after the race, I'll normally go through three months of recovery where I just don't exert myself. I just take it easy mentally, physically, diet, all that kind of stuff. Just I take it easy myself. Eat, eat bad foods um, and relax. Just recover. Let the, let the mind and body repair itself. Then the light training starts, then the heavy training starts, diet changes, uh, gear gets refined, uh, all in the lead up for I did a rod in, uh, in February slash March. Why do you think only very few people have completed this journey? Um, on the bike anyway. Let's on the bike, yeah. yeah. Look, it's tough. Getting to Alaska, it's a, it's a, logistical, uh, it's a logistical issue. It's a cost issue. Uh, many people have it as a bucket list. They'll do it once and they'll go, wow, that was, you know, that was tough. I enjoyed it. But I'll go do something else you know, next year. Uh, for me, it's been coming back each year and doing better, climbing that climbing that ladder each time, uh, refining my gear and setup, and and sometimes it's not so much for the performance aspect that I'll refine the gear, it's more just about the way that I want to do things. I want to experiment with a couple of things and, and see how it pans out just for my own intrinsic reward. We've spoken a little bit about the personal side of it. Tell us about, I'm sure the, for the tech heads, tell us about the bike, tell us about the equipment that you need, what fat tyres, it's uh, specifically a fat tyre bike? It is, yeah. So the uh, the, the bike I'm, the, the frame I'm using this year is from uh, Muru, uh, they're a company based in Sydney. Uh, it's a full titanium frame, uh, it's a long wheelbase, so we have 200mm added in the stays. Uh, so the front triangle is the same, uh, same dimension uh, as a normal fat bike, but we've lengthened it, we've drawn it out 200mm in the back. That gives uh, more uh, riding stability with a longer wheelbase, um, so more inline inline stability, so straight line stuff. It's not for, you know, it doesn't give you anything in cornering. It, it turns like a barge, but um, <laughs> there aren't there are some. You've got a bit of time to turn if you need, but exactly. it looks a bit yeah. easier. Yeah, there 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 are some some definitely some technical riding on the trail. It's not all about just fire trail the whole way. There are some some technical bits there, but you've got time to react. Uh, gives you the ability to store your gear longitudinally as opposed to width-wise. Um, you are looking at, at every aspect of it and there are times when you are into the wind. You might be into a stiff headwind uh, riding on some of the rivers. So aerodynamics does play a part. If you can get that gear stored longitudinally on the bike, happy days. Um, all the usual things that you'd imagine, uh, lightweight carbon rims from head, um, uh, run tubeless uh, tyres. I'm running studless tyres from 45 North, the Huskadoos. Uh, they're a 4.8 inch wide tyre. Uh, without studs, it presents a bit of a challenge on a lot of the glare ice sections. So the ice is exactly that. It's just bare, bare ice on the frozen rivers and lakes. Mm. You have to just lower your tyre pressures and, and take it easy. Um, with a studded tyre, you have these small carbide studs. They only protrude about a millimetre and a half and uh, they provide the traction on the ice. So you've got a lot more, uh, lot more traction there. The advantage of running a studless tyre is you've got a lot less rotating mass. So you're reducing 200 odd, 250 grams um, right at the periphery of the tyre by not running a studded tyre. So have you had any major incidences with the bikes? Uh, 2016, I had a gummed up tubeless valve uh, that's probably the worst from a mechanical side of it um, i do a lot of prep on the bike and being a bike mechanic by trade it's uh, it's a big advantage i actually spend more time working on other people's bikes <laughs> fixing them 
in the race. During the race, yeah. yeah. yeah camaraderie in the race is quite high. So, you, you know, you, you're out there and you're in a shared environment, so you share a lot of the, um, and the highs and lows. Um, but helping to affect uh, uh, somebody else's race in a positive way, you know, uh, might help them finish. Uh, 2017, um, the race leader at the time, Amy Breen, she was having some tubeless problems at the first checkpoint. When I came across her, she was uh, tyres were just continually going down. She had lots of she had a gear issue as well. So um, yeah, I spent half an hour just fixing her bike, and she then went on to win um, in that category. So does that give you a little bit of a a boost knowing oh, that totally. you know, you're, yeah yeah you know so much work goes into the preparation for this and and it would pain me to think that someone had to scratch because of something so simple with their tubeless so um yeah it was it was a really good that's a really good thing it's a lot of camaraderie out there on the trail what about the history of of this event it it, it started because they wanted to get freight from one side of alaska to, to Nome with the sled dogs and keep that alive is is that part and parcel of it too is there still that sort of History, sort of everyone takes account of that history. There is, there is to a point. Yeah, the the dog race, just like the the bike race, has evolved a fair bit over time. Um, the way that the bike race actually started, uh, Joe Reddington, um, he had a very big part in the in the, the early years of the dog race. Uh, he challenged the mountain bikers of Alaska uh, to it was basically, I bet you guys can't ride to Nome. So, yeah. And that's how it started. That's how it started, yeah. Terrific. Yeah, the, the first race had a handful of races and then you know, a lot of people didn't finish. Some did and it just grew from there. Is, so, it, is it right in saying that this, this sled, there's dogs ahead of you clearing the trail? Is, no, no, the, no. The, the dog race starts a week after us. Okay. Uh, so at some point in the – because the, the dogs work quite efficiently um, in their travel speeds, there is a point when they do pass us. And that's kind of neat, actually, to have you know to be amongst all of these dog teams out on the trail. So it's, an, it's such an institution, isn't it, up in Alaska? The the, the Alaskan dogs and the sled dogs. Yeah. Yes, it is. Uh, a lot of people uh, that are still living um, out in the bush, uh, they do have they run dog teams as part of their transport. They'll use them to, uh, to set their trap lines and um, run yeah, to and from town. So dogs are still yeah, freight dogs are still a big part uh, of Alaskan history and uh, and current life you you are locked in for 2020 um yes. when will when, what will it take for you to to i guess s- stop doing this event you, you obviously want to have the goal of number one and s- stand under the arch at gnome number one first i do is, have uh yes i've, I've got I've is got that, that the only goal uh no no i do have uh i do have much much bigger goals with with this particular race uh and it's still that's still yet to play out uh, i've got a few years i mean i'm still young in in comparison to um to ve- veterans of the race um there are foot athletes out there still um still kicking goals at uh, 65 so um yeah in terms of ultra endurance uh it does suit the, the more mature athlete um, younger athletes, they, they may have the horsepower uh, and the um, and the, the, the greyhound aspect of it, but it really takes life experience, I think, to get on top of that mentality and perspective on things, keeping a you know keeping a, a, a bigger picture view on things. That's where I think I think it suits the mature athlete. What's the record of days to 
to be? Is it because it's 19, you did it a few years ago in 19 days? Yep. What's the, the day record? So two, they have two routes, the north route and the south route. Uh, there's a little bit of difference in terrain between the two. Uh, on the north route, the record is around 11 days. Wow. So it's absolutely stonking pace. But you've got to have a very good weather window as well for that to happen. And on the south route, that's uh, 17 days. So it's north route next year? North route next year, yeah. Yeah. Um, it, I mean, it's not to say that it's going to be, uh, it's going to be easy. Every year it's, uh, you know, it's a big variety in weather. Uh, and you go through so many different weather patterns. Um, you're on both sides of the Alaska Range. Uh, you also um, uh, traverse the Yukon River for around 120 miles, and that can be a real, uh, a real mixed bag. What do, what do you say to people when you tell them what they do? What's their reaction? Oh, it usually, it, it usually ends up uh, being a good you know, hour or so question time mm. uh, because one, one answer leads to another question because it, it, it's such an interesting topic. Um, and you know, some of the interesting questions come from kids as well. You know, they've got, of course, some of the you know, fairly puerile and fairly basic questions, but it's, it's interesting because they can also be the most, interest, uh, the most important aspects of it too. You know, they, they want to know, how do you go to the toilet? <laughs> what do you eat? Oh, I wasn't going to go that it's, far in our discussion. No, but. we don't need to touch on it. But it's, it's interesting because you do have to, in your preparation, you've really got to cover all of these bases. Um, and it's, it's just all part of your preparation. You have to, you have to think of every, every little aspect. What does your family think when they're, you're away those well, few they're, days? They're very supportive. In the early days, my wife was quite, um, quite concerned. Because we, when, we, when we start the race, we're in a little bit of a bubble. Um, there's no uh, cell reception out uh, through, uh, through the trail. So you, you, you don't have that ability to, to have comps all the time. You're relying on what the race directors publish on the, on the channels. Um, and um, they're really relying on your own competency to make sure that you, you, know, you know what you're doing. Uh, so there's a little bit of trust in that. But now... Um, my wife will kiss me goodbye and say have a great race and then uh, we'll Skype a little bit in the in the the acclimation phase when I'm in, in Anchorage but uh, after that it's just a few chats here and there a few messages here and there so the support from, from my wife is phenomenal um, yeah, financially, emotionally when I get back from the race I'm just a, an absolute bag of mixed bag of emotions so it's uh, yeah, lots of highs and lows and lots of stories to tell but it's very much a family thing for us. What's, the, I guess, the one piece of advice you can offer to people who, because endurance athletes are a, a, an interesting breed, um, mm. what's the one piece of advice, I guess, you'd, you'd offer to someone who uh, would be interested in looking at something like this or just a little bit less but still um, tough enough? Oh, absolutely go for it. You won't know what you're made of until you, until you get out there and, and do it. Um, plan everything down to, uh, to infinite detail. Uh, that will help with your success. But uh, once you're out there, just adapt to the new reality. Every minute, reality will change, and you've got to adapt to that and, and keep moving forward. Once you've set that goal of completion, then do everything that you can out there um, because it's, it's far better than, than scratching and then having that deep regret of, of you know, maybe I could have just eaten that or taken a little bit more of a rest here and there. Um, you can always finish it. It might not be pretty, but you, you, completion is the ultimate thing. 
Well, Troy, you certainly are, are the mantra of um, life off-road, um, same name as our podcast, and thank you very much for catching up with us in Daisy Hill. Um, it's a little bit warmer there, and we look forward to following your travels in 2020. Fantastic. It'd be great to have some, uh, great to have some watches there. Thank you.